Well, welcome this weekend. If you're uh, watching at night, it's good evening to you. If you're in the morning, it's good morning. We're just glad you're here. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or uh, on the internet or maybe here at the Long Point campus in one of the venues. Uh, we're glad that you're along too. Now, let, let me ask a question. Here's the, here's the question for the weekend. How have you have had a bad day? Not, not, not like today. How have you have ever had a bad day? Okay. All right. All right, now how about today? All right. Okay, now how many of you in your life have ever had a really bad day? Really bad day, okay? How about a bad week? Bad month? Bad life so far, okay? All right, now, now as bad as your bad day was, I'll bet it wasn't as bad as this. A fierce gust of wind blew 45-year-old Vittorio Luis car into a river near Naples, Italy. He managed to break a window, climb out, and swim to shore, where a tree blew over and killed him. Now that's a bad day. How do you know that? How about Walter Hallis, a 26-year-old uh, store clerk in Leeds, England, was so afraid of dentists that in 1979 he asked a fellow worker to try to cure his toothache by punching him in the jaw. And uh, he fell down hitting his head, and he died of a fractured skull. How of you know, that's a bad day. How about George Schwartz? George Schwartz was the owner of a factory in Providence, Rhode Island, who narrowly escaped death when a 1983 blast flattened his factory except for one wall. And after treatment for minor injuries, he returned to the scene to search for files. Guess what happened to him? Yeah, the remaining wall fell on him. Bad day. Really bad day. Hey, one more. 1983, uh, a Mrs. Carson from Upper State, New York, was laid out in her coffin, presumed to be dead of heart disease. As mourners watched, she suddenly sat up. Her daughter dropped dead of fright. How you know that is a bad, bad day? Now, to be honest with you, most of your bad days weren't fatal. You're here, okay? And, uh, but it, they, they can be as small as a bad hair day. Some of you evidently had one today, it looks like. Or they can be as large as your best friend betraying you or something entirely worse. Somebody said one time, no matter how bad things get, you've got to go on living even if it kills you. And, you know, that's, I thought that was pretty good, but obviously not. So today... What I want to do is I want to talk about how to keep your joy on a bad day. We're in a series right now from Philippians. We're calling it the DNA of joy. And let me tell you about this series before we go a little bit further. We're our third week into it. We were going to make a five-week series. We're going to do an introduction and then one week for each of the chapters of the book. And as we've gotten going in it, it's like, I don't want to do that. We're, we're going to dig in. So we're extending the series if that's okay. If it's not, we're doing it anyway. We're going we're gonna to make it 10 weeks in Philippians, and we're going to go verse by verse and really try to plow through and extract some of the good things. It really is one of my favorite books uh, in the Bible. It, it is about joy. Now, let me just explain. As we go verse by verse, um, some chat, uh, passages will be more joyful than others. 
Okay? And so there, it's, it's not going to be about joy each week. The, the overall theme is joy. But since we've broken it down just a little bit, we're going to try to stay true to the text and kind of tackle them as, as they come. The theme will be joy. Some weeks will be less joyful than others. Is that all right? All right, so let's, let's dig in. Paul, the writer of Philippians, uh, had, he was acquainted with bad days. In fact, he had had a series of bad days Bad weeks that stretched into bad months that literally became four consecutive uh, not-so-hot years. His circumstances had been kind of miserable for the previous four years. Started with two years in prison in Caesarea on trumped-up charges. He was not guilty of anything. And then he was placed on a ship to go to Rome to see Nero. If you know anything about history you know that Nero was not kind to Christians. And that's who Paul is going to see in Rome. However, on the way to Rome, uh, the ship got into a very bad storm and was shipwrecked on a a mostly deserted uh, island. Uh, Fortunately, everybody survived. They all got in. But shortly after uh, uh, they, they got to the shore, they built a fire and a poisonous snake came out and bit Paul. Just not his day, month, or week. They finally got their ship together and <laughs> and they, they began to sail some more and, and they went, uh, they got to Rome and Paul was then imprisoned for two years uh, in Rome, which would ultimately lead uh, to his execution. He had a guard 24-7. There was absolutely no privacy for him. And to make matters worse, most of the, or many of the church people, in fact, leaders in the church, turned on him while he was in prison for no apparent good reason. He had a bad, bad stretch. But in spite of that, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18, here's what he writes. He writes, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. I rejoice now and I'm going to continue to rejoice. How did he do it? What was the secret sauce, you know, that he was drinking? How did he he survive? Not just survive. In fact, Paul was having several bad days, but he was making it a great bad day. And so what I want to do is I want to study from Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 through 29. And we want to talk about how to have a great bad day, okay? Because you're probably going to have another bad day. I'm just telling you that. This is life. This isn't uh, heaven. This is, you know, Mount Pleasant or wherever you happen to live. And if you're going to have a bad day, why not have a great bad day? Well, how do you do that? Well, let's dig in. Three words. Three words that I saw in this passage that kind of were keys to how Paul handled his bad day. The first one is perspective. Perspective. You've got to get a bigger perspective. You know, we all have problems. Problems aren't the issue. Problems aren't as important as how you look at them. Perspective is the key to maintaining joy. And what is perspective? Perspective is knowing what really matters. It's seeing the big picture. I read a story recently. In fact, I'll read some of it to you. One day a traveler was walking along a lane and he came across three stonecutters working in a quarry. Each was busily uh, cutting a block of stone. Interested to find out what they were working on, he asked the first stonecutter what he was doing. 
He said, I'm cutting a stone. Still no wiser, the traveler turned to the second stone cutter and asked him what he was doing. Well, I'm cutting this block of stone to make sure that it's square and its dimensions are uniform so that it will fit exactly in its place in a wall. So he knows that it's a stone and it's part of a wall, but he's still, he's a bit closer to finding out what the stone cutters were working on, but still unclear. So the traveler turned to the third stone cutter who seemed to be the happiest of the three. And when he asked what he was doing, here was his reply. I am building a cathedral. I'm building a cathedral. See, perspective can give meaning to the seemingly trivial. So what was Paul's perspective on a bad day? Here he is. He's in prison. You've heard the whole kind of lead up to it. It doesn't look like he's going to be getting out anytime soon. So what's his perspective from there? Verse 12, chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along. If not, it's in the outline sheet or on the screens. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me, everything, false imprisonment, getting shipped to Nero, shipwreck, snake-bitten, prison, Christians turning on him, puts them all in one category, and he says, Everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Paul has a perspective, not just any perspective. He's got what I call the gospel perspective. His situation obviously isn't ideal. It's not what any of us would aspire to. It would be easy for him to complain, but he sees it in light of a bigger picture. He sees his life in light of the gospel. What's that? The gospel is this. That a loving God created man. Man of his own volition sinned and turned from God, separating God. God in his love for man came up with a plan, sent his own son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus would live a sinless life. That he would die for mankind's sin so that there could be peace between God and man. And so that man could live with God forever. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul said, my life, regardless of what's going on, my life is to be seen in light of the gospel. He sees himself in a bigger picture of spreading the good news. The big picture is the gospel, not his living conditions. See, if you go all the way through the Bible, you find biblical characters who had bad days from time to time, and those that really thrived had a bigger perspective. They had a God perspective. You look in the Old Testament, you see Joseph. Joseph had a whole series of bad days. Unwisely, he talks to his brothers about how, how favored that he is, and he actually is in his father's eyes. And so his brothers kidnap him, throw him into a pit. They're going to kill him. Some travelers come by. They bargain a deal, get some money for him. He becomes a slave. He works his way up through the slavery system. He's falsely accused of rape. He's thrown into prison and forgotten about. He just kind of rots there for a few years. Finally, over time, uh, he gets a chance to get out. He gets out and God elevates him to a position of power in Egypt, the country that he's in. You guys know this story. There's a famine that comes over Israel and And his brothers are forced to come to the leader who they don't know is is their brother who's kind of doling out the food. And they come starving and 
he recognizes them and he goes and he cries because he hasn't seen them or his father in years. And finally, in this, this last scene, he reveals who he is. And his brothers are afraid because the position of power that he's in, he can have them killed for what they did, revenge. They're thinking, no doubt he's upset at us for how badly we treated him. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, he gives his perspective. He says, as far as I'm concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. He brought me to the high position I have today so I could save the lives of many. He says slavery and false accusation of rape and imprisonment, it was all for good. How? Because he had a God perspective. Jesus had the same thing. He knew what his mission was. You remember several times the disciples would come to him, especially Peter, especially when he got to talking about the fact that he was going to die. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They certainly didn't want it, as you wouldn't want one of your friends to. Sometimes they thought maybe he was a little out of his head. And so they would come to him. And Peter came and he said, Jesus, you're not going to do this. They're not going to kill you. They're going to have to come through me in order to do it. And Jesus rebuked him. And he said, no, guys, it's okay. It's okay. I've got to die. It's a part of the bigger plan. It's the gospel perspective. Philippians 1 and verse 13, Paul uh, elaborates on it. He says, for everyone here, he says, you know, all this has happened. I'm in prison, yes, but don't worry about me. He says, everybody here, including all the soldiers in the palace guard, know that I'm in chains because of Christ. He's got an elite guard with him. <clears throat> Maybe it's because um, Nero, the leaders, know uh, his reputation a little bit. He's got had some creative ways that he's gotten out of jail uh, before. And uh, in fact, one of them was in the city of Philippi. They know that he has stirred up uh, great crowds both for good and those that oppose him. And so they have the elite guard, the best of the best, and one of them is chained to him all of the time. Instead of complaining about the fact that he has no privacy, he says, I've got a captive audience. (laughs) They can't go anywhere. And you know what? They're seeing how I respond to all of this, and through that, they're hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. He says it's in light of the gospel. And because of my imprisonment, he goes on, many of the Christians here have gained confidence and become more bold in telling others about Christ. A bigger perspective. A gospel perspective. What if we all did that? What if on our bad day, what if all of us had a gospel perspective? We saw our lives or our troubles or our bad days in the context of the gospel, a bigger picture. Here's one I hear quite a bit. I feel stuck. Some of you may feel stuck now. It's not fun to be stuck. Stuck kind of indicates that you have, you know, I, when I think of stuck, I think of in Colorado, you know, sometimes um, in the snow, uh, you know, you'd get into a snow bank or whatever with your car and you'd rock it back and forth and then the, the wheels would just turn like this. And as it turned, you just got more and more stuck. And it's a helpless feeling. And sometimes you feel like that in life. You may be stuck in a dead-end job that's going nowhere. You can't see the end of it. Or some of you wish that you were stuck in a dead-end job. It would just be nice to have a job, you know. 
That might give perspective to some of you who are stuck in a dead-end job. You may be stuck in a, in, a, uh, in a difficult relationship or you may be stuck in a health crisis that is just so frustrating for you. You may be stuck in painful circumstances that make for continuous bad days. So what do you do and how do you apply this to that? What if you looked at stuck in light of the gospel? Would that change your perspective? In light of there is a bigger picture that God actually knows I'm here. He knows my address right now. He knows what's going on. I've said a hundred times if I've said once, God has never woken up and said, if God wakes up, God has never looked at a situation and said, boy, I never saw that one coming. And He's never looked at a situation in your life where He didn't say, I saw that one coming. He's at work on the solution before you even know there's a problem. See? And so what if you put your life in perspective of the gospel and said, you know what, God actually knows I'm here. Maybe He has a redemptive purpose. Maybe I'm a part of His big plan for other people, for somebody, somewhere. See, Proverbs 20 and verse 24, I read this in my quiet time this week, is powerful scripture. In the New Living Translation says this, the Lord directs our steps, so why try to understand everything along the way? That's for somebody here. That's your refrigerator verse this week. God directs your steps. Don't sweat the small stuff. Everything's small stuff. Don't try to figure out necessarily what's going on along the way. Maybe instead of stuck, God is trying to show you how to slow down. See, Paul is this restless guy. He loves to travel. He's kind of, I, I see him as kind of a type A personality. He's always moving, always got a plan, always wanting to do something. He goes from this place to that place. He's always talking about how, where he wants to go. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to the churches in, in uh, Europe that I've planted. I, I, I need to go here and I need to go there. And maybe God goes, I need you to slow down a little bit. And so I'll use whatever circumstances around you to do that. And I'm sure that at first had to be a little bit frustrating. He was stuck. So what did he do during his stuckness? He wrote some books. I'm glad he did. It helps me today. The book of Philippians was written while he was stuck in prison. God stopped him and I'm glad he did. So instead of wasting time and energy on looking for a way out, the way out will come. Just assume that God has directed your steps. You got to look at a big picture. How many of you know that sometimes the big picture is hard to see? Do you agree with that? Right near the end of World War II, Winston Churchill's party did poorly in an election and he was forced out as prime minister. He was personally hurt by it. He saw it as a personal offense because he felt as though the people had betrayed him. He had just led them to victory in a war it looked like that they were going to lose. He was confiding in his wife and his wife Clementine said to him, it may well be a blessing in disguise. To which Churchill replied, at the moment, it seems quite effectively disguised. (laughs) And your problem right now may be a blessing that looks quite effectively disguised. Maybe God wants to use your attitude in the middle of a bad day like he did Paul's to impact those around you. Paul inspired a whole group of people by his courage and attitude in less desirable circumstances. What about you? Maybe you're having a bad day or maybe you've just come out of a bad day and you know how you respond to bad days. 
Do you encourage everybody around you or do they kind of want to leave you alone during your bad day? Your bad day can be a source of encouragement. It can be a source of preaching the gospel without really saying anything. So the first way to have a great bad day is perspective, is to see it in in a bigger picture in light of the gospel. So the second thing is this. Second word is focus. Focus. You've got to make sure in a bad day that you focus on the right things. When things are tough, you need to know what's important. You need to know where to focus. I'm kind of the family photographer. I'm, all, I'm not all that good, but I'm cheap. And so every time we have a party, this week we had our seventh one-year-old party. I have two more to go. I'm not coming to yours. Don't even invite me. I won't be offended. So they, they, they called. Dad, bring your camera, you know, because you're the photographer. I know you're not much, but you're all we got kind of a deal. Well, let me tell you what photography is. Photography is simply looking at the big picture and catching moments if you can. And the way you do it is it's pretty simple, really, is you focus on the right things. And if you focus on the right things, usually you can get a good picture. And these days they've got automatic focuses on the camera, so it kind of makes it easy sometimes. <laughs> but sometimes I will think that I have got the focus right, you know. And and something happens. The, if, the focus focus on, on something other than the subject, and so the trivial is in focus while the important is blurred. I'll give you a picture from the party this week. Take, take a look at this. Can you see this on the screen? This is, my, this is my newest grandchild, or no, second newest grandchild, Judah. They're about the same age. And uh, it's wonderful except for you can see the blanket really, really well. And Judah is, you know, kind of blurry. The blanket's not all that important. Judah is. When you focus on the wrong thing, the trivial comes into focus and the important becomes blurred. It happens all the time in our lives and in our relationships. When a team member knows uh, what they need to do to finish the task and get it, getting it done, and instead they're updating their Facebook status, the important things get blurred and the trivial comes into focus. If you're married, most marriage arguments or even arguments with friends are the results of the important things getting blurred and the trivial becoming the focus. You know, you usually argue about little things, silly things. Think, think about your last argument. Silly things that in the big picture really don't matter that much. But here you are, you've drawn a line in the sand. You're choosing sides and you don't want to lose. Can I tell you how to diffuse some of that? My friend Billy Hornsby, and I wish you'd pray for Billy. Billy's going through a tough time right now. Billy was on staff here, and then we sent him to Birmingham, and we've established the ark, and Billy's fighting a battle with cancer. My friend Billy taught me a lot of things, but he, he taught me how to diffuse an argument. And it's just four simple words, and here they are. When the heat is on, when your ears are turning red, you know. Does anybody else do that when you get mad? Mine do. It gives me away all the time. 
Four simple words. You might be right. You don't even have to believe it. Just say it. (laughs) You might be... That'll play in Columbia. (laughs) You might be right. Maturity comes when you realize you don't have to win. And besides that, it's not a big deal. See, most church splits are the results of the important things getting blurred and the trivial coming into into focus. If you've ever been a part of a church split, it was probably over something that in the whole big picture of things, it didn't really matter. In fact, some churches' multiplication strategy is based on division. (laughs) Instead of planting churches, they just split them, okay? Because the focus is on the trivial. You know, we've never had a church fight here at Seacoast. Ever, and I don't think we ever will. Because our focus on sea, at Seacoast is on what unites us, not what divides us. We could pick fights about all kinds of things. But we choose not to because I think that in the big scheme of things, that most things just don't really matter. And on a bad day, it really gets magnified when you focus on the trivial. Look at how Paul handled it in verse 15. He says... Some are preaching, he's talking about preaching Christ. Some are preaching Christ out of jealousy and rivalry. But others preach Christ about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know the Lord brought me here to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my, not sincerely, they are intending to make my chains more painful to me. When I read that this week, I thought, why would people do that? There were some Christians who are making life hard for Paul. I I had to look it up. What, What do they got against him? I don't know. It may have been in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, there were some people that thought Paul wasn't a very good speaker. He wasn't a powerful speaker, and so they kind of put him down a little bit on it. Maybe that was the deal. They thought he was a, thought he was a big deal. Or maybe it was because he always send, ended up getting in trouble somewhere, stirring up a fight and ended up in jail. I don't, could have been anything. They just don't like him. What I do know is that they're not motivated by love. They're motivated by greed or competition or just trivial stuff, a desire to harm Paul. In life, there are going to be some people that just won't like you. In fact, the higher up you go on the food chain, the more people there are that don't like you. I remember how devastated I was one time when a guy in Mount Pleasant, I didn't even know, who had a position of power, said that he intended to make my life miserable. He didn't even know me. So how do you handle that? You choose what you're going to focus on. Philippians 1.18, Paul says, But whether or not their motives are pure, the fact remains that the message about Christ is being preached. So I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me, and as the Spirit of Christ helps me, this will all turn out for my deliverance. That's incredible. Most of us, and I would be the lead one, If that was the case and we're in prison and it's not for anything that we did and the body of Christ ought to be for us and there are some yo-yos out there running around trying to make life difficult for us, who do you focus on? The yo-yos, don't you? And Paul says, no, listen, don't worry about it. (laughs) 
Christ is being preached. It's true. A lot of people are, uh, are preaching Christ to make money or their selfish motives, but his focus was on one thing. He says the gospel is being preached. So if you're going to have a great bad day, you've got to have the right perspective, big picture. You've got to have the focus right, focus on the right things. And then here's the third word, and it's mission. Mission. You've got to remember your mission. Truth is, Paul's old. He's tired. He's been beaten. He's been in prison for four years, and he's ready to go to heaven. I mean, he's looking forward to the fact. He so believes in heaven, he's looking forward to getting there. They've taken away almost everything from him, his friends, his ministry, his freedom, his privacy. They've deprived him of everything except the one thing in life that can't be taken away. And that's his mission. That's why he lives. That's his purpose in life, his reason for living. And so in verse 20, he says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the primary thing for me, number one in my mission, number one, is that God be glorified. That God be exalted. How is God exalted? By how? By Paul's attitude in less than desirable circumstances. He said, I'm hoping that they will see me in this bad day and they'll see that God is good. That Jesus is exalted. That I'm not just like everybody else. That I'm not complaining. But I'm hoping that I can do well in this test or this trial so that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. One of the most powerful verses in the Bible. For me, to live is Christ, but to uh, die uh, is gain. These are not the suicidal ramblings of a tired, defeated old man. He's just speaking the truth. He knows, hey, I'm going to die someday. And it probably won't be long. He's not afraid of it. Death is just off to better things for him. But he says, while I'm here, I'm going to have a purpose for living. So let me ask you a question. How would you fill in that blank? If we said, for me, uh, to live is blank. For you. To live is blank. What what do you fill that in with? Is it possessions? For me to live is is good stuff. It's money. It's having a nice house. It's stuff. Well, you know, that's not wise. Because a lot of us have had a lot of that taken away over the last three or four years. And in some cases that looks like a bad thing but in some cases maybe it's not a bad thing it helps us to realize what's really important in life possessions are easy to lose how about pleasure or happiness for me to live is so that i can be happy i can pursue happiness as we discovered in the very first uh, session of our time together in philippians that happiness is an ever-changing target that ultimately fades away If you're choosing to pursue happiness, if that's the top thing for you, 
you're going to be disappointed because pleasure doesn't last. In fact, if you're in the pursuit of sinful pleasure right now, and some of you are, some of you are in the pursuit of something that gives you a buzz, gives you a high. It might be drugs. You might be involved in, a, in a, a, an affair right now. You may be involved in an affair with somebody in this church or your spouse's friend or whoever it is. And it's secret and there's something exciting about it and you're getting a buzz that you just weren't getting before. Let me just tell you this. Let me just tell you this right now. It's the best it's going to get right now. You're at the pinnacle because it's downhill from there. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. But pleasure fades. You mix sin with pleasure, and I'm not saying that all pleasure is sinful, but if you mix sin with pleasure, then you've got a fading thing that you're going you're gonna to be called into account for, and it will ultimately destroy you. I wouldn't fill in the blank with that. Is it power or popularity or prestige? Somebody said adults dress for success and drive to impress. I think that's probably true. Teens will do whatever it takes to fit in. Whatever it takes. Peer pressure. Even if it means lowering your standards. But here's the problem with that. You can be the most popular guy on your high school campus or your college campus or whatever today. And when you graduate and you come back two years later... Nobody will remember who you are. I did that. I, I don't know that I was the most popular in high school, but I, because of athletic stuff, I, I knew a lot of people. A lot of people knew who I was. And I remember going back about three years later and looking around, and nobody knew me. It brought home the, the words of the great theologians, the eagles. They will never forget you until somebody new comes along. See, the problem with possessions and pleasure and power and popularity is that it doesn't last. It doesn't last for a lifetime and it certainly doesn't last for eternity. If possessions brought joy, then whoever has the most would be the most happy, wouldn't they? And we know that that's not the truth. If power or pleasure or popularity uh, brought joy, those with the most would be the happiest, but they're not. Paul knew that. So here's what Paul says. I've got one goal. One goal in life and it's Christ. That's it. Look at the next verse. Philippians 3.13. We're going to study this one more clearly in a few weeks. But he says, I'm focusing all my energies on one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us up to heaven. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid you're going to read that. We're going to see that church as the thing that the professional Christians do. Yeah, that's Paul. Man, he's a professional. He's writing the books. He's the preacher. That's Greg. That's Billy Graham. How do you like how I put myself sandwiched between Paul and Billy Graham? No! That's all of us. There are no professional Christians. Some of us get paid. We're good for nothing. Or we're, we get paid to be good. You're good for nothing. That would have been good if I'd have got it right. So what's Paul's mission? Philippians 1.22. He says, if I live, that means fruitful service for Christ. I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. Sometimes I want to live and sometimes I long to go be with Christ. That would be far better for me, but it's better for you that I live. 
Paul says, it's not about me. It's about you. It's far better for you than I live. I'm convinced of this. So I will continue with you so that, I will, so that you will grow and experience the joy of your faith. And then when I return to you, you will have even more reason to boast about what Jesus Christ has done for me. Okay, here's the question I asked in a series a year ago. Why aren't you dead yet? Why, aren't you, why isn't your bad day like the first bad days that we read? Why are you still alive? Why does God, when, a, when someone comes to Christ and he becomes a believer, she becomes a believer, why does God leave you on earth if you're a Christian? Can I tell you? It's not to make more money. Well, it's not a bad thing to make money, but if that's your pursuit and your goal, it's, yeah, listen, somebody, somebody said, there are no U-Hauls on um, uh, funeral hearses. You know, you don't take it with you. It's that there are no pockets in funeral suits. Okay, that's going to go away. It's not so that you can experience more pleasure or any of the other things. Here's why God has left you here. It's for the benefit of other people. Same as Paul, the benefit of other people. You want to know what your mission is? You want to know what your purpose in life is? I know that we're all different to some degree and we all have a little different nuance on it, but, but here it is. Here it is, right here. Your mission in life consists of three things. To worship God with your life. To bring glory to Him. Paul says, I want to exalt Him in my bad day. Your mission in life is to bring glory to God in your bad day and in every other day. Number one. Number two is you're to encourage other believers. There's an up part to exalt God. There's an in part to encourage other believers. Number three, to share the good news with those who don't know. With those who don't know. Worship God, encourage other believers, and share the good news with those who don't. When you base your life on those three things, then problems just aren't as significant as they used to be. So things haven't worked out like I had planned in life. So what? God has a purpose bigger than my problems. Gang, that's the road to true joy. Will you pray? Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your kingdom. God, I pray that You would recalibrate us this weekend. God, some of us are going through some big things. I don't want to trivialize that. We need prayer and we need help from You. But God, all of our stuff is in the context of a bigger picture. Lord, I, I hope that You would challenge us to live our lives in a way that glorifies You, that encourages every believer around us and shares the good news with those who don't know. Now, God... Show us what you want us to do and how you want us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.